Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our podcast. On this episode, we speak with Stuart Popejoy, co-founder from Cadena. This is a really great technical conversation around the hybrid public-private blockchain that Cadena is building with their Chainweb platform and Lisp-inspired smart contract language Pact. We cover how traditional finance firms incorporate new technologies into their workflow, real-world use cases of Cadena, and what's happening in the enterprise. We also get into the technical details of Chainweb's proof-of-work consensus system and the importance of safe code, which is an underpinning of the packed language. But before we get to the conversation, here is a word from our sponsor, Blockchain Training Conference, that I am really excited about. What if there was an educational industry conference where all the sessions were focused on teaching you something instead of selling you something? There is, and it's Blockchain Training Conference 2019. It's going to be hosted August 28th to the 30th in Denver, Colorado. BTC 2019 offers every attendee the chance to leave certified and confident in their understanding of blockchain technology. Move past the jargon to gain a robust understanding of blockchain and cryptocurrencies with masterclasses taught by industry luminaries like Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Rene Picard, Jameson Lopp, Pamela Morgan, and many others. Register today and learn more at blockchaintraining.org. So we're going to be at this conference in August, so reach out if you will be there as well. would love to meet in Meetspace. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard, and we're additionally joined by Stuart Popejoy, co-founder at Cadena. Uh, really excited to speak to Stuart, given his background in the space, his integral role at J.P. Morgan's Blockchain Center, and his experience building trading and exchange systems. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here and talk to you guys. Awesome. So first, uh, why don't we start off, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but would love to hear a little about your background and kind of your own blockchain genesis story and how you got interested in this space. Sure. My uh, interest in blockchain really starts after I had been working at JP Morgan building trading systems. My background uh, in software engineering before I got into blockchain was working on exchanges and trading systems in New York since about 2000. And I was looking to get into different kind of work and found myself, I was given the opportunity to join the J.P. Morgan New Products Division, which is was for doing a lot of different research projects for the investment bank. But the blockchain part of it started first as a way to guide J.P. Morgan's strategic investments. So that was interesting because basically my group would come into the room to technically evaluate various people wanting to come and either partner or even in some cases sell products to J.P. Morgan, get J.P. Morgan to adopt their technology. Mm-hmm. So it was a very kind of broad introduction to the space. Vitalik came in. Our th- we started working with R3 right away. IBM came in right away. We were founding members of Hyperledger Foundation and uh, you know, uh, Tradeblock, which would become Axani. We kicked off a POC with them. So at just on the level of seeing what was going on and starting. And this was in 2015 and 2014. So this Mm -hmm. was really at the very beginning of business starting to look at blockchain to see what it could offer. And I think one of the most interesting things about that is that it was really clear that blockchain gives a technological benefit that is unmatched, that is we're still struggling to realize even today for businesses like all the things that make bitcoin such a miraculous piece of software should really help businesses and should really take them to a place where a lot of their operational concerns and security concerns just go away yep 
but that's kind of why we founded Cadena was to coming out of that group was to take these ideas of taking like perfectly replicated data, safe smart contracts, logic that's easy to understand and runs exactly the same and never has any bugs. I mean, these kinds of things is what the promise of blockchain really is. And looking at all these vendors, we saw that everything was coming up very short, whether it was on the safety level, whether it was on the replication level, and also performance. We found that there were a lot of technical challenges preventing this this technology from meeting the performance needs that mm-hmm. people would need to see to be able to, you know, Bitcoin does fine, or, you know, depending on fine, I mean, but, you know, Bitcoin is certainly alive and well, but everybody knows that nobody's going to base anything on Bitcoin except Bitcoin itself because of how slow Bitcoin is. Yep. So these are all the things that we were really excited about. And as part of our work in the research group, we got a chance to work on the first version of JP Morgan's JPM coin. Got it. Which was the product they announced earlier this year. And uh, so that gave us, and we had a promising prototype that we were working off of for a private blockchain that we actually open sourced and presented to the Hyperledger Association. And that open sourced software became the foundation of our private blockchain, which is what we launched Cadena with. Yep. So one of the things we didn't do at JB Morgan was work on a smart contract language. So that was the other thing that we really founded Cadena to do was work on a better smart contract language. Gotcha. And, you know, it's interesting because often at large banks and finance firms, technology departments are often thought of as uh, cost centers since they aren't necessarily the primary revenue driver of the company. So curious, like given your experience at at JP Morgan, how, how do they approach incorporating new technologies and kind of vetting process? What are the vetting processes at a bank like to incorporate a new technology? Well, that's a very insightful comment you made because it's a huge kind of pathology for banks, in fact. Banks like to say that they're technology companies because they're so dependent on technologies, but because they look at it that way, a lot of times it's hard for them to actually advance. I mean, it's one thing to do greenfield stuff. you know. So for instance, in the early days of electronic trading, banks were willing to throw a lot of money at the problem because they didn't have any systems in place. But once you have systems in place, they become very slow. Right. And, and again, because they're already spending all this money on tech and they see that strictly as a cost center. And that's actually one of the things about the group we were in was that it was it reported the head of product in that group reported directly to the CAO of the investment bank. So the idea was that we wouldn't operate under those constraints. And then when the time came, so for instance, working on JP Morgan coin, we went straight to the business heads and presented solutions to them as opposed to so that once a pilot had been identified, you get the business sponsorship up front. And then once you have that, everything changes. But that's another thing, of course, that, you know, that we focus on a lot at Cadena is that is, you know, making sure that use cases make sense, not just that we're going to stamp blockchain on something and be like, hey, we're the latest and greatest, but like, is there something where blockchain is going to deliver a competitive advantage and actually make money for somebody as opposed to make you look tech forward and doing all the latest sexiest stuff? Is this actually going to make dollars and cents kind of make a change to your business for the better? That's interesting because I, I w- we wanted to talk about more about real world use cases of Cadena. So I thought uh, something really impressive that we saw recently was you guys signing up with an asset manager with the uh, USCF, and I think that's uh, United States Concierge Fund. Is that is that right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Correct. And they have the commodities fund that houses USO, which is basically like the biggest oil ETF out there. So what was that solution, and what problem is it solving, and how does it help that asset manager? We'd love to understand that stuff. Well, there it's funny because there's a couple things going on. First, you know, you mentioned uh, USO, and if you think of what they had to do to get that product to market, they had to be very innovative. I mean, that's an ETN. Yep. So that's not even like an ETF is some is a relatively straightforward concept, but an ETN is basically a credit instrument. You know, and so they had to do a lot of they had to really think outside the box to get that product to market, and then it's been tremendously successful and is still one of the best. Uh, you know, and as you said, it's the biggest, but it's also one of the best, best performing oil ETFs. 
So what we found, you know, the very vague notion is just like how can crypto make new markets for traditional financial products? You know, and of course, a lot of people thought about this, but what you see out in the market right now are concepts that don't really mesh very well with something that will actually make a difference to investors. They'll make a big difference to crypto, but they won't make a big difference to investors. So like a stable coin would be huge for crypto. You know, everybody wants a good stable coin in crypto. I mean, just look at how much people are interested in MakerDAO. Although I think <laughs> it's largely speculation that's driving MakerDAO. But you know, but but you know, they're, it's a it's a well it's a well positioned product, and there's certainly a lot of interest in it. And that's and they're a very smart company too. So, but you know, in terms of what USCF is really focused on is looking at some of the advantages that the crypto market brings. And and a real easy one is just 24 hour access. So, by the way, we're talking about public blockchain here. We're not talking about like a JPM coin or, you know, a lot of the things that R3 or even, you know, a lot of things we see running with Ripple or, you know, and Stellar back systems, which are essentially private or, you know, what Libra would be, which are all private blockchains. We're talking about crypto. We're talking about the fact that the kind of radical market access you get when you're using public keys to buy and sell using public key technology, blockchain technology to buy and sell financial instruments. And so the idea is how can we get products into the hands of a crypto investor? And that turns out to be a very, you have, it's another one of these things. You have to really think outside the box to bring something like this to market. And how are you finding the sales cycles like right now when you're trying to bring Cadena to other enterprises? What kind of convincing do they need now versus, say, like a year or two ago? You know, it's one of these things. We have a lot of use cases that we're working on. And we're part of this. We helped launch the Synaptic Alliance, which has, you know, United, Humana, Optum, all these other participants in it. But even there, getting, like we did a full POC, of this public health data marketplace application. And, you know, and this was an example of where PACT really shines because they brought in Ernst & Young for kind of evaluating complexity of the project and, you know, we're involved in the paper they wrote. And when they walked in the door, you know, the project had been going on for like a month or two and they were like, yeah, we don't think this is really suitable for blockchain. We should do something just like timestamping. Uh, this is too complex of a use case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the developers from the company we're working with were like, uh, we're already done. Yep. <laughs> we all, they already had the use case, you know, and a UI front end and everything for running on a real, on a real block on our blockchain platform. Yep. But the point is, is that what enterprises are going to move very slowly on this. So where we've seen the most traction in terms of like stuff that you're going to see this year or next year is folks like USCF. We're also working with uh, Remedy, which is spelled R-Y-M-E-D-I, which is a company that's already really innovated in using blockchain to solve public health problems. Mm -hmm. We're going to be working with them on a couple of initiatives in the United States to surrounding things like vaccine distribution and things like that. So, yeah. So what we, you know, where we really hit, and there's another client we're working with who's actively switching off of Ethereum because they have it's a financial service, a fintech company where they, they had a really great idea of, of how to use blockchain to implement a kind of way to uh, share consumer data safely. And it was just so hard and so expensive, actually, to do it on Ethereum. And once again, it was another thing where they were able to get their use case together in two weeks, you know, using Pact. But getting back to the enterprise question, you know, one thing we benefit from, though, you know, like we're critical of IBM and their blockchain, and I wrote a article about that basically called them out for not being a blockchain. <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> IBM is doing a great job of educating the market. So people go to IBM because IBM is talking about blockchain, and then they say, hmm, what really is blockchain? And then, you know, the people are kind of more kicking the tires or very cautious and really just want to dip their toes, you know, stick with IBM. But then the ones who really want to really have an idea for something that's transformative, they stare harder at the IBM product and then they come back. Yep. So IBM is part of Hyperledger. You know, we're, they know who we are, we know who they are. We're critical, but that's also because we really want 
people to understand what the technology is and what it isn't and what it is that IBM's offering. You know, I'm sure it solves some people's problems, but the word blockchain is just a little bit too nebulous for that. Yeah, and it's probably a little bit concerning to some type of buyers too, given, you know, the craze in the ICO space and just how volatile the coins are and so forth. I'm sure that, you know, affects the kind of optics of how people think about it. I think so, yeah. I think, though, that it goes both ways, right? Because, well, one thing we're definitely seeing, of course, is a lot more adoption of Bitcoin as a financial instrument. Um, You know, there's a lot of things coming to market right now where it's to make it easier for institutional investors to get access to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So that's on one side of it. But that's because, you know, like, that's kind of Bitcoin only. You know, Bitcoin's kind of emerging as a super mature product, you know, which is kind of funny, but but it is. So, you know, but at that same time, it means you have companies like Fidelity bringing things, bringing like new exchanges to market and things like that, or people, you know, like Fidelity's putting a new, they're very interested in it, in that. So I think what we are trying to do at Kadena is really bring a safe, an environment where you can really write safe smart contract applications to bring new business models to market to public blockchain. Yep. And that's where PAC comes in because, you know, it's an open source smart contract language. It's got formal verification, which allows you to use the computer to help you find bugs. It's a hybrid, it works in a hybrid model, which means you can write, and this, for instance, is very important to USCF because there's going to be a lot of moving parts to, you know, while the goal is to be able to, you know, use the crypto markets, there's going to be a lot of moving parts in clearing and in reg and all these other things. And a lot of those things are going to be hosted on a private blockchain. So what we're increasingly going to see is you have people like R3 saying that only private blockchain is ever going to work. And then, of course, you have all the public blockchain kind of hate for private blockchain. But our view is that blockchain is going to move forward by being a hybrid, where you're using private blockchain for the stuff that can't be exposed to the public, but you're still leveraging all the kind of trust between members that can exist in a private blockchain. And you're using public blockchain so that you can get access to these new markets. And PACT is the only language that you can write a single application and deploy to both and exchange data between them. So uh, definitely want to get into the hybrid blockchain stuff for sure. But one thing that you mentioned, which brought to mind uh, an interesting question is around this notion of safety. So I think you had spoken in the past about how you had written a language that was used by sales traders at JP Morgan. It was basically designed for non-developers. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the idea there was there's a lot of products floating around in financial services that claim to let you write your own algos, but they're all <laughs> similar products. And they basically, you know, there's kind of like very well understood patterns of trading that institutional traders want to use. And the idea is they have some idea that when a certain kind of market movement happens, they want to be able to do something mm-hmm. else. The, the thing is, is to make something like that really easy to write, but also perform really well and be really safe, like not, you know, have no possibility for any kind of bug or anything like that. So at JP Morgan, we came up with a thing called Algogenetics. And the old product was one of these like GUI driven things. And it was really kind of a mess. And the new product was basically, well, one, I had to support all the old, all the old client algorithms that had been built the old way. But I wanted to make something that would make it possible to really write anything you could think of. But it was important that it not be software developers writing that code. It was important that it be sales traders because they're the ones talking to the client and time is of the essence from a competitive yep. point of view in the sense that uh, normal Software development in a bank is one of these things where it takes months to get the smallest change out into production. We needed to be able to get stuff out into production in like 24 hours or 48 hours. So so there's a lot of decisions made in the design of that language to make it safe by design. I mean, it's it's considerably more restrictive than something mm-hmm. like PACT. Um, for instance, it doesn't have any variables. All you can do is make rules that dictate how things will change and what they will change to, and you can parameterize what they would change to, but you can't and you can evaluate expressions such as, like, I want to be this much better than the S&P index. But you can't write proper program code. All you can do is kind of specify these kinds of loops yep. that would allow you to go between two algos or something like that. So the point was is that 
nobody ever thought that a scripting language would be usable by non-technical developers. But then they, what you find when, you know, anytime you do something like this is what you find is that the business users are always thinking of more things than you can ever uh, predict. Yep. So, you know, it's kind of like what people do with Excel formulas. You know, they write the most unbelievably complex things with those things. But Excel never crashes. You're never going to, you know, as long as you stay away from PBA, if you're writing Excel formulas, you're never going to crash Excel. And so it's the same with algogenetics. You couldn't write an algogenetics algorithm that would crash our system or that would trade out of control. It just simply wasn't possible. And as a result, you started having these really complex user, you know, these like sales traders writing these really complex, like quite involved things. So... That's really what we are yep. shooting for with PACT is give people really safe building blocks and looking at what you really need to do in crypto. You know, one of the things you have to do in crypto is check public key signatures. You know, you don't want people having to write that themselves. Mm -hmm. But as a result, we made it something where you can do single sig, you can do multi-sig, you can do anything that you, you can use our public key signature algorithm, you can use Bitcoin's. You can use both of them in the same transaction. And the point is the developer never thinks about these things. The developer simply says, I have this set of keys and I'm going to enforce that. And I'm saying that it needs to be used before you do X, Y, and Z. And I enforce that. And it's really simple to do. And you can't break it. You can't like introduce some kind of weird crypto problem or null pointer exception or anything like that. The, the key set gets verified or all bets are off. Okay, got it. So that's pretty different from something like Solidity in that case. Oh, very much so. And you know, and originally, you know, we definitely we didn't just rush out to market with this. We looked long and hard at the EVM and Solidity. And you know, we have a we do write articles that say nice things, but we also write some very critical articles. We wrote an article on EVM called "The EVM is Fundamentally Unsafe." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and but you know because it was just like people would keep saying these things about the EVM and it's like and and blame or they do things like blame Solidity, and the fact is is that the EVM itself is an unsafe environment. Mm -hmm. You know, I by design, honestly, it's not. You know, and that was so. For instance, one of the things about Pact is Pact is Turing incomplete. Pact does not allow you to have unbounded loops or recursion. Yep. that's really what it doesn't. It actually does let you loop, but it doesn't let you have recursion. And the idea being that. If you look at the bugs that have really, like, the, the worst, you know, kind of the most famous bug in Ethereum was a recursion bug, the DAO hack. But they're always the kinds of bugs that are the hardest ones to find. They're the ones that are hidden in your code that you're never going to root out. So you eliminate that and you eliminate this huge class of what are called reentrancy bugs. So we did a bunch of things. You know, Pact is also human readable. It's interpreted in the sense that it doesn't get compiled. You write the code and you put it on the blockchain and you use it. And that way, you know, you're calling somebody else's. In fact, on our public blockchain, all of our coin transactions are governed by a pre-installed smart contract. So you can go and look at the very code that is transacting our coin on chain and you can benefit from that code in your own applications. We're really bullish on smart contracts so much that we made it that nothing really happens in the blockchain application layer that isn't in a smart contract. Oh, interesting. And it's, you know, like, and it's to address kind of like, one of the struggles, I don't know if you ever heard, there's a, there's a currency, I forget what it's called, ETHX or something, and it's an ERC-20 that has a one-to-one -one relationship to ETH. Uh, if you look at the, I, I'm forgetting, but if you look at the uh, MakerDAO like architecture, they use this. A lot of people use it because they want to be able to interoperate with the ERC-20 with ETH. So they'll use this other token that is basically just, just to be able to treat it like an ERC-20. So that's one of the things that, like, right out of the box you'll get on Cadena is, you know, the coin will behave like any other smart contract. Yep. That actually brings me to the next question in terms of the key components of Cadena, because we have the Chainweb platform, the Pact language, and so there's a coin as well. We'd love to kind of understand how they're all related. Sure. So there's the Chainweb network, which is already in testnet. We're just about to release version two, and we're kicking off our beta program, we had a bunch of people write in, so, so we're very excited about that. That's launching on October 30th. That's when we go into mainnet. Chainweb, you know, importantly, is a multi-chain proof-of-work system, which allows us to linearly scale a proof-of-work blockchain to handle upwards of really no, no upper limit, depending on bandwidth, basically. But, you know, 
we're going to start at 20 chains, which if you take like a Ethereum style, uh, whatever that ends up being like 10 transactions per second, pessimistically on 30 chains, that's now 300. And then we can fork the network to larger. But the point is, is that that's, you know, packed runs on that. But we also have our private blockchain, Scalable BFT, and that is a high-performance private blockchain. One of, the, one of its claims to fame is that, unlike a lot of private blockchain platforms out there, you can keep adding new participants. And by participants now, I mean validators. You can keep adding new validators to the network, and it doesn't slow it down. So that's one of the things we're critical of IBM of, is that the more validators you put into a given network, the slower it goes. We've tested our system with uh, upwards of 500 nodes. And, you know, remember, this is doing full replication. This is a real blockchain, maintaining over 5,000 transactions per second. Mm-hmm. So, but the point is, is that it's the same architecture as a blockchain in the sense that it's identical layout to every node. So you just roll it out, and then when you want to bring on somebody else, it's just as easy to, they just need a signing, you know, a key pair in order to participate in validation, and, the, and then they're in. So it's chain web, public blockchain, scale BFT, a private blockchain, and then pack the smart contract language that allows you to write applications for both. Got it. I know Faison and I were chatting about this earlier with respect to trying to understand better how the proof of work works here in terms of is there mining? What does it mean to have multiple chains interact with one another? That kind of stuff. We'd love to love to dig into that. Yeah, so the idea, this is an idea that's been around for a little while. It started coming up after Mt. Gox with Bitcoin, which is that two chains are stronger than one. If you have two chains doing proof of work, one of the things they can do is every block, they can look at the last block that got mined on the other chain and incorporate that hash into their proof of work hash. And the, So the idea there is that you're not just including the work that you did to make this block, you're actually including the work that got made, done on another chain to include that block. Mm-hmm. And the security, it becomes that much harder to attack the network. So now you've got two histories you have to overwhelm, not just one. And uh, so Chainweb basically, but one of the, Chainweb generalizes this notion over using a graph layout because the one thing we had to solve was you can't include every chain. So you want to include a subset of chains. And how do we do that in a way that doesn't take forever for the security to propagate throughout the entire multi-chain yep. network. So that it uses these, this expander graph topology to do this. But the point is, is that making these graphs is an NP-complete problem, but people know what the graphs are, and there are graphs that have you know, order 50,000, order 100,000. We can support much larger networks than we know what to do with. And the idea is that because you get increased security, the per-chain hash rate goes down with the order of the graph, okay. with the size of the network. So the idea is that you can go from a 10-chain network to a 20-chain network. Oh, and by the way, we're not, we haven't decided if we're doing 10 or 20 chains, by the way. We might launch with 10. You know, we're still, that some of that stuff's going to be coming out of our experiments yep. and testing. But the point is, is that, say we launch with 10 and then we go to 20, the hash power doesn't go up. So, but the throughput does. So the point is it ends up being much more efficient than other proof-of-work architectures because while Bitcoin, when more miners come to Bitcoin, you know, after a point that, that that security isn't buying you anything, it's just using more energy. Whereas in our case, that can be used to power larger and larger networks and get more and yep. more throughput, you know, to the point where we could be running things like a Visa-style system on a public blockchain and the important thing to remember is that blockchains, it's still proof of work in the sense that it still takes a little time for things to confirm. You know, it's, not, it's still a probabilistic system in the moment. But it's important to remember that even Bitcoin, we take Bitcoin as an example of a slow system. Even Bitcoin, you know, where it takes like an hour plus for a transaction to clear, that's still many, many, many times faster than Visa. Visa, in fact, takes a month to clear. Stocks take three days. Right, to right. You just don't see it yeah. on the front end. You don't see it on the front. Right. Merchants do. <laughs> Merchants yeah. definitely do. Merchants are, you know, they get screwed by that yep. all the time. So what we're doing is we're braiding. We call it. We like to call it braiding chains. Um, you know, it's for the same amount of energy. We get a multiple of uh, speed and processing, and 
so we're still going to be seeing those confirmation. They're more like Ethereum confirmation times. They're, mm-hmm. they're smaller. But, you know, they're still measured in minutes at least. But the point is it's really cleared at that point. So when financial systems start being able to leverage this stuff, it's really going to be a sea change because a lot of money gets, you know, there's a lot, we, we like to talk about trapped liquidity. There's a lot of money that is trapped because, you know, it's basically already been spent, but it hasn't cleared yet. And so this is true in stocks, this is true in credit cards, this is true, you know, all over the place. You move these things to a blockchain system like ChainWeb, and remember that, you know, the throughput is going to be there. It's going to be able to do 20,000 transactions per second or whatever. You get to that point, and all of a sudden, our clearing systems become drastically simpler, and the kind of money that frees up is tremendous. And uh, just for clarification, so with this uh, braided system, there's multiple chains running in the chain web. Now, if I'm a miner or I want to propagate a transaction to the network, am I running a single chain within the web, or what is the interface? That's going to be up the... to you. Um, okay. But you know, we're work, we're starting to work with miners now, and the, the the cool thing about chain web is that it actually can make for a very efficient use of mining power. So, you know, depending on how you've got your rig put together, you could either be trying to mine on every chain at the same time. You could be mining on one chain and kind of like randomly picking. But some things that emerge are like, you know, I mean, this is what mining pool operators do all day long is, you know, right. they're, they're trying to basically get alpha by just trying to make smart decisions about how to use their mining resources. ChainWeb gives you a lot of different ways to look at that because... In a given network, once you've won a block or once somebody has won a block, that chain becomes kind of less interesting for for a moment, at which point you might be more interested in a chain that hasn't, you know, that there's going to be interesting things about deciding how you decide which chain to work on. But the thing that's very cool about it is that you'll have these kinds of big, chunky decisions to play around with for how you want to use your mining hardware. And miners are very excited about that. So one of the things we're working on right now is trying to making sure our API is going to be good for miners and making sure that like people who've run mining pools will, you know, I mean, obviously it's going to be a different API, but they'll recognize what they've seen before and be able to start innovating. And what kind of hardware would a miner be able to mine with right now? GPU, uh, CPU, maybe something, some kind of ASIC? Well, our goal is to launch with a hash that is not on ASIC currently. We're not terribly concerned about ASIC resistance. We just don't want someone to show up with an ASIC. So our plan is to launch with a GPU algorithm that isn't necessarily ASIC hostile. And, you know, so initially have a GPU friendly Mm -hmm. algorithm that miners can use. And then, uh, you know, really at that point, somebody doing the tape out and the investment to make an ASIC, we actually talk with a lot of the, you know, thought leaders in the space like Saya, you know, and Obelisk and those folks and various other people. But the real thing is, is just trying to pick something that, that what's interesting about ASICs is that what you want to avoid is some kind of situation where, you know, somebody has a secretive ASIC that nobody can reproduce. If you have something that's relatively easy to understand, then really you just get power improvements out of it. And so we're not ASIC hostile. We just, the, the thing we have to avoid is coming online and then somebody showing up with a bunch of ASICs they don't need anymore and hack, you know, and taking us down because they feel like it. Um, yeah. You know, because after that, it becomes the usual kind of like situation where somebody doing that tape out is making a huge investment in your network. And it's actually a good thing. And it saves power. You know, you get more efficiency out of it, too. Yeah. And in ChainWeb, again, we do more with that power. As utilization grows, we fork to more chains and we support more and more bandwidth. We're not going to launch with a huge network because, you know, we don't probably need that many transactions. But as people bring, it's really like smart contracts. As people bring new smart contracts and new, not just tokens, but other, you know, other applications, hybrid applications, various ways to use the blockchain. We want to be sure that you never get into this situation like CryptoKitties where you're a victim of your own success and nobody can use your application because everybody's using your application. Yep. And then... uh in terms of the a follow-up on the mining question is, on a per-chain basis, is the 
block reward uh, difficulty and supply different, or is it managed across the entire? Uh, it's consistent. Consistent across the yeah, mainnet. it's consistent across the entire net. We have a overall emission rate that's you know it's a, it's a deflationary. Uh, it's a very long decay. It's over a hundred years, but it's exponential decay. Um, it basically follows the Bitcoin model. Got it. But you know it's it's constant, which means that as you get more chains, um, well, remember as you get more chains, the difficulty drops. So does the reward per chain. But at that point, you're you know you're mining more blocks. So right. So it should um, correct. You know, so it, so it, it evens out to a certain extent. We have, I mean, if you're interested in it, there's you know some of the way we uh, investigate some of the security properties of it was with a paper that our head of research, Monica Queens, wrote with company called gauntlet and that used a very interesting simulation model agent-based simulation model coming out of the hft high frequency trading community okay basically posit that anybody attacking your network is a rational actor who is attacking your network because they want to make money and you know it's a good assumption because it's one of those things that like reveals a lot of surprising things and it's it doesn't. You don't have to explicitly be about game theory at that point. You can actually think about things where, you know, sure somebody could like amass some huge amount of hardware to do something, but is it actually going to pay off? Is it actually going to result in them? Because it's very hard to attack mm-hmm. the entire chain web network, and it's increasingly hard as time goes on because the hashes propagate throughout the network uh, fairly quickly, and that's that's really what that ta- paper dives into. It's a really interesting paper. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Back to the kind of hybrid blockchain discussion we were having earlier. would love to understand this and how this would work in the real world. So hybrid blockchain, what does that mean exactly? It means any blockchain where you're using public okay. and private both. Um, you know, so private blockchain is the more nebulous term, but we feel like a private blockchain is, you know, the, the closest thing is... Some, Something that kind of like is blurry is like Cosmos. Cosmos runs in the public, but has the architecture of a private blockchain. Um, so a private blockchain, you can think of like a Cosmos chain where everyone's mm-hmm. agreeing on who can be a validator. And there's no money. That's the other thing. So you don't have to pay money to be a validator. It's, you know, it's through some kind of okay. contractual agreement. Anyway, so, but you know, the, the real advantage there beyond uh, raw transactional speed is that you control who's running the network because that's very important for certain business cases. But the reason why I uh, get into this is because it's fundamentally not different than a public blockchain in the sense that it's still a system where you're using cryptography to guarantee an immutable record mm-hmm. of transactions and that, that everybody can agree upon. So the idea is that PACT is the language that allows you to do these things. And when it comes to them working together, one of the things we have to do already in ChainWeb, since ChainWeb is a multi-chain network, we need to be able to move coins around the network by burning and creating them, burning them on one chain and creating them on another. So we have a feature in PAC that allows you to write multi-step transactions. In fact, they're called PACs, where you you run one step on one chain and then you run the second step on the other chain. And behind the scenes the PAC language runtime is doing the simple payment verification Merkle check that that transaction actually occurred on the other, that the, you know, so it's delete, then create. You send, you initiate this two-part transaction. On one chain, the delete happens. You send in the transaction to the other chain to create, and behind the scenes, it verifies the SPV, the simple thing, you know, using Merkle roots and tracing the line over to the chain that happened through the roots that are exposed in the, in the target chain. But the point is this happens, the developer doesn't need to be an expert in Merkle trees and all this kind of stuff. This happens behind the scenes. So that same mechanism can move assets between a public chain and a private chain or a private chain to a public chain. From a public chain to a private chain, that's actually relatively straightforward. You just need a... Um, an oracle providing a list of headers that you trust coming from the public chain. From private chain to public, that's a more trusted thing. That's something where you're basically just going to want to have a bunch of validators signing on it and then be checking that on the public chain. It's inherently centralized, but there's nothing you can really do about that. But the point is, is that in both cases, you're using cryptography to verify some fact, and that fact can basically be transported across 
public chains and back and forth to private chains. And that's really the hybrid model. Got it. And what would be some kind of real world use cases where you, where you'd see that? Well, one is any of the kind of stuff we're doing with our financial services partners where, you know, the public chain is really there, one, to provide kind of market access to people Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, people have these crypto wallets and they want to be able to interoperate with crypto and go back and forth from like, you know, from like holding things in Bitcoin to holding things in your token and things like that. Yep. And kind of, but that's just basically custody management. And then all the regulatory stuff and all the know your client, and there's a bunch of sensitive information that needs to be tracked. And the best way to do that is to use those same signatures and those same keys on a private blockchain. And you can do things there where you can have it that the regulator, whatever regulator has authority over that particular transaction, can be running a node of the private blockchain in their offices. And they could have real-time visibility into the private nature of a transaction. But meanwhile, investors are benefiting from the kind of market access and transparency that's available on the public blockchain. So you need to be able to pass kind of facts back and forth. You need to be able to prove that something happened on the private blockchain on the public blockchain, and that's done via signatures. Okay. And then you need to be able to prove that something happened on the private, on the public blockchain, which is a much more straightforward proposition, to kind of push that clearing through the private system. Yep, got it. And on the com- on the competitor side, you mentioned Cosmos. Who are some of the other players here? Where does Hyperledger fit in kind of your worldview of competition? Hyperledger, you know, well, there's, I mean, there's Fabric, right? And yep. that's the kind of flagship. And they're really private, you know, strictly private, private only. And, you know, the idea there is that... Um, Private is always going to be a kind, it's a little bit niche, right? So the things that you, when you look at something like R3, Corda, or Hyperledger's Fabric, once you get to the point where you want to leverage, we really think that public blockchain is what's really driving the transformation and what's really changing things. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to get to a particular point where it's like, okay, well, maybe you have some cost savings, you know, maybe you have like a nice immutable ledger. Maybe because <laughs> read our article. There's some problems with that, but you know maybe you're going to have this nice ledger that you know that tells you everything that went down. But that's kind of it. But the on ramp on the public is something that's going to be increasingly important. And it's not just that. It's 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 also once you decide to do things like that, you don't want to be the first person to do it. You want to find solutions that work on both. You want to be able to leverage services that are already there. I mean, one thing about PAC that is a little less understood is mm-hmm. that because it's a very transparent system, because it's very safe, it also means that you can use other people's contracts in a way that nobody does on Ethereum right now because they're just too terrified. It's hard enough to write your own smart contract that doesn't have a bug that's going to cost you millions of dollars on Ethereum. <laughs> right. <laughs> Therefore, it is an unacceptable risk to call somebody else's smart contract running on the system. Mm. So what, you know, people reuse code all over the place, open Zeppelin and all these kinds of things. But what they don't do is actually like stand up something that is calling somebody else's complex system and sending messages over to it. And meanwhile, we think that that's really where blockchain needs to go. You need to be able to not just leverage code, you need to be able to call other people's services. So an example would be something like, you want to issue a new stablecoin and you want to price it on-chain using a real-time market data feed. Yep. So market data feeds are one of those things that sound simple and are actually kind of complicated. Like getting high-quality data into the blockchain is something that somebody could do. And while, of course, you could go scrape that data you know, and, and rob them and take the data for free because it's a blockchain, you want to be able to do something in process. And so to call their smart contract, they could charge you a very small amount of money. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically like an API-style services economy like we see in the cloud, but on blockchain. And these are the kinds of things that are really going to drive the transformation in the future is that you don't have to be, it's where we are with cloud today. I don't need to understand geographic systems and mapping technology. I can use use Google's Maps API. Yep. 
Same thing when you're on your blockchain, that you have an idea of something you want to do, but you want to leverage all the other things that are out there that can make it possible for you to do that. And then, of course, you're going to pay them a little. Yep. You know, that's that's fine. Or, or they give you a free version that's like, you know, 15 minutes behind or, you know, whatever. This is the kind of thing that's really going to make the difference, both in private and public, as, as you start, you know, getting into these really trying to bring the new use cases to market, the people who understand this are the people who are going to come to market first, and they're the ones who are really going to dominate. Yep. Got it. So for developers who want to work with Cadena, so you mentioned you're going to V2 testnet tomorrow and then October mainnet launch, uh, which is awesome. That's right around both, the, you know, once exactly around the corner, one's a couple months away. Um, so for developers who want to work with you guys, what steps would you recommend they take? Well, our uh, our V2 release tomorrow is going to include binaries for the first time, so you'll be able to download and run ChainWeb on your local machine. But, you know, honestly, uh, the easiest way to get involved is to check out uh, our tutorials at packlang.org. That's, I think, pack-lang, but we'll send you the link for that. And we have a web-based uh, development environment, pack.cadena.io, where you can start playing with smart contracts and even deploy them into our test net, onto like we have just kind of packed only servers that simulate a single chain blockchain. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really easy ways to get started using Pact. We also uh, are, you know, we have, we're in the Amazon partner network so that you can go on AWS and do a one click install of a four node blockchain of the community edition of our private blockchain. Yep. So, uh, and then, yeah, and, and then, again, the tutorials at packlang.org will take you through these things step-by-step step with, um, with uh, tutorials of everything. Got it. Uh, videos and things like that. So it's, it's a really nice experience there. And I know we like to build kind of small little toy projects when we're working with a new framework or language or whatever it is. Um, what do you think would be some interesting toy small-scale projects that you would like to see that people build on Kadena? Uh, there's a lot of really, I mean, there's so many interesting ideas out there of different things to build. I mean, I, I think some of the things that make, you know, that are really interesting in blockchain is to look at uh, various kinds of auctions and exchanges. But, you know, games are really interesting. We're always interested in seeing uh, how people might offer different kinds of market data, you know, like, oh, you want to get the latest Bitcoin price or something like that. There's so many different things you can do. One of the things about Pact is it really tries to make it look more like a database and less like a, you know, so it's really anything you can think, anything that you want to be able to safely record results, we just, we stay out of your way and just make it really easy for you to do that. Yep. You know, and then the other thing to look at is the the PACs, the, it's the DEF Pact is the name of the instruction, so that you can start thinking about how you can um, orchestrate multi-step transactions in a safe way. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and that's a really important thing because that's very hard to do. That's one place you can get a lot of bugs is something as simple as step one and step two. Yep. You know, because there's all these checks you have to do on step two to make sure step one happened. And then what if step one needs to be canceled? And all these things are handled by the language. And the last thing is that that we have this notion of guards and capabilities, which is very interesting. So it's it's a way of kind of organizing your code to make it clear what rights are owned by what users. But it's also, specifically with guards, it's a way to generalize the notion of a public key signature guarding. a. If you're familiar with Litecoin or, sorry, the Lightning Network and how the uh, atomic swaps work, it's something like that to make it so that anywhere you would use a public key, you could also use an autonomous ownership by a smart contract like we see in Ethereum. You could also use a custom piece of user code that does something like a, you know, a hash lock. And the point is these things can interoperate. That's what's really powerful about them. So like even with our coin, with our coin, you can own a coin as a user. You can also have a smart contract own that coin because it sticks a piece of data in there that says that special piece of data that only that smart contract can issue. That means that that smart contract owns it. You can also, in the multi-step, you can create a unique token that only that instance of that multi-step process owns. And that's how you can do escrow. So that you can have a multi-step process where that process itself owns money during the course of that process. 
And, and then you can go code whatever you want with the user, user definable one. And so the idea is, is just, you know, like, it's really thinking about different ways that people can own things is one way to start kind of coming up with new use cases. We'd love to see people do things with using secure enclaves and like making it easy for people to store their private key on a secure enclave in Apple iPhone device or something. I mean, there's just a ton of really great problems to solve. Yeah, that's awesome. Also, I want to mention that if you do have questions, we're always on our Discord channel. Okay. Um, you know, so anytime you have any questions about Pact, you know, we love talking about Pact. We love solving new problems with it. Uh, we're very open to people wanting to see new functionality in Pact. I mean, that's something that makes it different than something like the EVM. It's very easy for us to grow the language. So if somebody has a, an idea of some kind of like, and it's a way to make hard problems easy, is to add a new primitive to the Pact language. The process, in fact, is our, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, BIPs or EIPs. Yeah. So we have a KIP process, KIP. And the idea is we're in, we're in one right now to actually add these kinds of crypto commitments to Pact. Um, it's a simple concept, which is that you put an encrypted value on the blockchain, and then you have some process by which the way a person would essentially get slashed is if you decrypt it on-chain. And if it, do, if it isn't what they say it is, you know, whatever the punishment is. But the point is, it's a way of doing commitments is being able to decrypt. You would never want to encrypt on-chain, obviously. Right. But decrypting on-chain allows you to allow people to make statements that are encrypted in private. But if they didn't say what they were supposed to say, you can then enact something provable with a permanent record that you can use to slash them. So that's something that came from the client I was talking about before doing the fintech use case. Mm-hmm. They opened up that kit. So awesome! It's on GitHub. That's a that's a open. We're just starting with that. We're also you know ERC twenty. You're, you're familiar with that. We're yep. we're shortly kicking off our fungible asset or fungible token, which is like ERC twenty. Mm-hmm. So that's something we're looking for community input on. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.